HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Comté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. I'm Marissa Ross. And I'm Adam Horvulis, and we're the hosts of Natural Disasters. It's a podcast about natural wine and shit. Every week we're going to be going through the basics, the ins and outs, and the culture around natural wine, and, you know, other shit that we just decided that we kind of want to talk about, but mostly wine. Yeah, I I mean, have have you had that friend that uh, has shut up to your house with a bottle of wine and gone, this is natural wine? And you're like, I wish I knew a little bit more about that, and was entertained. Or maybe you're the friend that's like, yo, this is some natty wine, and you just want to learn more about said natty wine. This could be a good podcast for you, too. Or maybe you know everything about wine, and you just want to listen to some really entertaining people drink wine and chit-chat. Yeah, we do a lot of that, too. Yeah. Like, for example, um, I went to a Pusha T show recently. That was really fun. That's pretty amazing. It was great, except I was really looking for Kanye to come out, and then he didn't. And even though, you know, I'm still a little mad at him, but I'm, we don't need to get into We don't into need to get into that. Anyways... Wine and shit. Yeah. Join us. Natural Disasters Pod on Heritage. Yes, on Heritage Radio Network. It's the best. We're really excited. (laughs) All right. All right. Bye. Bye. And welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Elena Santiade. My guest today is Master of Cheese, Will Studd. Listeners, if Will Studd isn't a household name for you yet, then today is your lucky day. Will has worked in the specialty cheese industry for over four decades. He's perhaps best known for producing and starring in the cheese-focused television series, Cheese Slices. The show is in its eighth season. And he's, the, he's also the author of two books, Chalk and Cheese and Cheese Slices. And he's the selector of the Will Stud Cheese Range, a business focused on uh, cheese sales for the Australian and the U.S. markets. Will, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Thank you for having me. 
It's really, really great to speak with you. Um, and as a longtime fan of cheese slices myself, first of all, I was super excited to see them online because when I first found out about your show, I had to, I was like trying to find the DVDs all over the place <laughs> and uh, amass the full collection at that point. So I have well, a. Well, that's, uh, that's true. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that, that, those were the old days. Now, now it's online. I know. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, online. you could just watch them all. It felt Google like them. it felt so hard to uh, to get them for a little while there. So I'm really excited. Listeners will also add a uh, link in the show page in the show notes. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the show. Um, and my first question is: Now that you're eight seasons in, how do you decide? on what to cover each season. How do you, how do you curate your episodes, so to speak? Well, we try and we, we until the eighth series, we've tried not to go back. Uh, we've always tried to go somewhere new, mm-hmm. um, and, and really somewhere that, that's important or symbolic or there's a good, there's a good story. Mm. Um, and, and over, over the, it's been going since 2002 now, the show. Mm-hmm. Um, over that time, we've traveled to over 22 countries. Amazing. And I don't know how many dairies, but a lot of dairies. <laughs> and I count myself as very, very fortunate to have got an inside look uh, at those at, at those dairies. You know, when you when you go out and film a dairy mm-hmm. uh, or film film a story about cheese, it's not just a uh, something that happens over a couple of hours. You can spend a couple of days, sometimes a week, in a, in a particular mm. region, and you really get down and into what, why, you know, why those cheeses are important and, and the people behind them. Mm. And it's not always good, but generally speaking, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine. I mean, it's like on set. I assume it's probably long days, and by the end of a few, even just a few days. You've spent so much time with whoever your subject is that day. Um, is there a particular episode from the current season, season eight, that stands out in terms of a place that you got to know especially well or a, a sort of new frontier that you feel like you hadn't covered yet? Well, season eight was, uh, was, was, a, was a, say, a slight departure from the previous um Seasons. Mm-hmm. I actually took my daughter along with me. Yeah, I saw we that. I wanted to ask about that. That that was exciting. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it was a great idea. Um, she would say that it was a lousy idea, but uh, she's there <laughs> anyway. Um, so she didn't have. Think, it wasn't uh, her idea. She she didn't. She wasn't for it. Well, it was tough on her because mm. uh, because to be honest, the crew. So used to working with me, having another person involved got complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she did. She did a great. Um, she was great, and it was great. Great to share um, the experience with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure in years to come, in a little bit, she'll look back on it in slightly more, you know, slightly uh, wider <laughs> way than she looked at it at the time. But um, what was nice is there's, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Andre's book, Guy de Fromage. Uh-huh. But at the start of the book, there's a um, an introduction where he t- it's uh, called a letter to my daughter, mm. and he explains about uh, how season affects cheese, how to pick cheese in a in a store, um, all the basics about about, about cheese selection, mm-hmm. and the idea was really relate came, really came from that. Mm. Um, and uh, but I think that the highlight of that particular show was to go back and try and explain 
to the audience that a lot of the great classical cheeses um, of Europe and indeed some of the benchmarks of the US mm-hmm. um, and and, uh, and UK are under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when I say benchmarks, I'm talking about raw milk cheeses. So right. uh, we went to Roquefort, for example, and there's, uh, there's two producers out of the seven producers of Roquefort holding out against Mm. Uh, producing a pasteurized version of Rockfall. Mm. One of them is a very, very small producer, and the other um, represents about eight percent of production. But if, if either of that, if, if, if those two producers roll over, that's the end of Rockfall as a raw milk cheese. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that, the immediacy there is to... astounding. Actually, when you think about that, did they feel it? Yeah, well, did... it has big implications. Yeah, did they feel a lot of pressure? Did you get the sense that they are uh, holding their, the line in a strong way, or uh, how tenuous would you say that it is? I would predict in the next 10 years, Rockfall will be made from pasteurized milk wow. for export. Hmm. Um, hmm. It's, it, it's, it's complicated politics, but uh, the majority of uh, Rockfall is controlled by one large company, mm-hmm. and it would suit them to roll over and change it all to pasteurized for export. And they they are the same company that's um, driven the changes to to come on there. Yeah, which so have been also, so so dramatic. Well, it's just it's just going to confuse the consumer, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I understand why it's happened. Um, but it's it's it was clandestine what happened with. With Camembert, it's, it's, a, it's a battle that's been going since 2008. Hmm. And basically, when the uh, Appalachian uh, re- refused the application to allow a pasteurized version of Camembert in Normandy, the large producers, two large producers, decided that they would no longer support um, the, 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 the AOC and started producing Camembert that looked like real thing, but when you actually start dissecting the labels, it wasn't the real thing at all. Mm. It's made from pasteurized milk, and they'd, but they'd still have you know, claims of metals from 100 years ago on the front cover. Mm. <laughs> yeah, those <laughs> like subtle... When, when, you, when you start... Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then uh, we also visited... Uh, so that was another episode. So that was... That was... Um, that was major. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we also... Uh, we did a lovely story in the States, actually, with um, Jasper Hill. Yeah, you were up course. in Vermont. Uh, yeah, well, we love Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've filmed up there three times mm-hmm. now. But again, that story was about uh, the threat um, to traditional production of raw milk cheese hmm. and, and some of the challenges that, that are put in the way of small cheesemakers um, and, and trying to highlight those challenges. Because... I think one of the fascinating things about um, cheese is the people who make it mm-hmm. and the challenges they go through to make it. Um, it's not just, I mean, it's really hard work. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of worry as well. You've got right. to be very dedicated. And all along the way, you've got these sort of hurdles that people are putting in front of you, and including um, the, authority, you know, the food authorities. It's making right. life really difficult. So you've really got to be dedicated hmm. to producing cheese that has a genuine sense of place. Uh, I'm, that really fascinates me. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, Jasper Hill's one of, one of those places that uh, they've really um, set a very high benchmark. Mm-hmm. And over time, 
uh, it's great to see Bailey Hazen Blue still made from raw milk. But when I first went there, there was a whole range of um, soft cheeses being made from raw milk, which mm-hmm. are no longer made just because it's the you know it's just too difficult mm-hmm. under the current regulations. Did you do you find that there's so, a country that you've been to that is at all bucking that trend, or would you say this is like pretty much across the board? Like, is there a country that uh, is almost embracing a more traditional po- approach, or at least embracing raw milk cheeses in any way? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think there is. I think, um, yeah. I mean, the, the, look, there's been a, uh, in the time I've been in the cheese industry, there has been a revolution when it comes to raw milk cheese. Hmm. Um, in, in, at the end of the 60s, early 70s, there was a real... Uh, question mark over the future of raw milk cheeses, hmm. generally speaking, and cheese was heading down this route of being uh, super industrial, uh, predictable, and all basically being the same and all about price. Right. Um, the revolution that, that occurred around that time was, was was driven by consumers interested in in uh, finding cheese that really. Re- reflect a sense of place. Mm-hmm. It was part of a bigger movement, actually, when I look back on those times. It was part of a bigger movement. It sounds crazy now, but the idea of being vegetarian, for example, was... Uh, it was pretty was, radical was, was, was back then, right? Right. Yeah, like you're crazy. <laughs> uh, a, a, a lot of stuff there. So it was part of a, a movement, um, a bigger movement, but uh, I guess that's how I got into it in the first place. But it... Mm. it um, so there has been that revolution, but over the last decade or so, you, you, as, as uh, the production of milk's becoming more industrial, mm. there's, there's been this, this growing call to um, ban the production of, of traditional raw milk cheeses. And I think that uh, because I live in Australia, it's a country that doesn't allow the production of raw mm-hmm. milk cheese right. um, and hasn't allowed the production since 2002. It's been a bigger issue for me than probably most. Right. Uh, because because it's for me, it's like uh, it's like asking someone to paint a picture, but only giving them one color. It's, right, it's, uh, such it a good it analogy. Very difficult. To, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned so, that you had. I, I wanted to just follow up on that little mention you did of how you got into the whole cheese world in the very beginning, because that sparked my interest a moment ago. Did you? Um, was it through the larger food movement happening around, you know, that time, the 60s, the 70s? Was it cheese right away, or were you in sort of caught up in the the larger idea of more traditional foods or uh, taste of place? What was it that hooked you on early on? Okay, well, it was, it was early 70s London. Uh, I actually tried to be an accountant for a year and decided that really wasn't for me. Very different. Very different <laughs> from what you're doing now. <laughs> Couldn't handle the Thai thing, but there you go. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but we do need them. And, uh, and uh, so I went to work with a, uh, at a shop called Justin de Blanc in Belgravia, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the first shops in London selling uh, a range of really good French cheese, which they sourced from Rungis Market in Paris directly. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that sparked my interest in cheese. Mm. Uh, subsequent to that, I um, established five shops in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so by the time I, I, I migrated to Australia, I think I was 27 at the time, 
I've had these five shops and I've built a reputation for selling cheese in London. Right. And I've uh, become a regular visitor to, to France. But uh, the English scene was pretty interesting then. One of my first um, experiences with the shops was uh, to go down to the west country of England where cheddar mm. comes from yes. and, uh, and and check out traditional farmhouse cheddar made from raw milk. And in those days, it was illegal for the farm to sell directly to a customer. Mm. Everything had to go through this milk marketing board. Interesting. And the problem with the milk marketing board was that uh, it had been established after the Second World War to try and control uh, the production of cheese. But mm-hmm. the problem was that traditional English farmhouse cheddar, once it got into the, the big sellers, uh, came out with just their marketing name on it. You didn't know where it came from. Mm. There was just an age on it. There was really no no grading hmm. meant anything. And uh, traditional farmhouse cheddar makers were, were disappearing. Hmm. So uh, the, 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 one of the first things I can remember is going down to this farm. It was actually Quick's Farm. Oh, yeah. And it just uh, started making cheddar. And uh, they couldn't they couldn't sell their cheese. They had uh, a lot of cheese that was eighteen months, two years old, and they couldn't wow. sell it. And uh, I remember them. Um, I guess we broke the law by starting to sell <laughs> cheese in London. <laughs> but it, it roared through the shops, and I learned something. Yeah. I, did, I really did learn something from from the experience. Uh, apart from just the fact that you know it was worth challenging the the, the system, mm-hmm. um, was that people, consumers, when you give them something really special, mm. they will come. Right. Um, and it wasn't it, it, it wasn't it wasn't the cheapest cheddar you're ever going to find, but it was really really good. Mm. And people would come into the, the, the shops and they go, "Wow, that's that's like cheddar like I remember." Mm. And, so and interesting. And have a really good following for it. Yeah, it goes so, back to that idea um, of like the what drives cheesemakers to push through all of the many hurdles that they face, right? Yeah, well, I think that that's right. Well, that, yeah, when you see the smile on someone's face when they're trying something really good, mm. um, I don't know. It's it's uh, it, it's it's really very rewarding. Um, that and 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 when and when people get it, I I can remember. Uh, and some really old pensioners coming in and tasting the cheese. And you know they didn't have very much mm. money, but they just come back every week to get some more. Yeah, wow. <sighs> wow, well, on that note, I'm gonna, uh, I'll am gonna i take us into a quick break here. And um, we'll be back in a moment to talk more cheese. And listeners, stay tuned for more of my conversation with Master of Cheese, Will Studd. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. 
Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. So, Will, right as we went on the break, we were talking about those early days when you were um, selling cheese and kind of bringing it back to the the customer in that magical moment. Um, and I wanted to ask you a bit about how you're selling cheese these days uh, because it, you're doing a different thing and I, I don't know fully how, how it's working, but I know that you've got 11 incredible looking cheeses on your website and I'd love to hear more about where those cheeses are landing and, um, and also how you're choosing them. Well, the the idea of doing uh, a, a selected range of cheese mm-hmm. really came after um, I sold my distribution company in in Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, still felt I wanted to be part of the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we we went out and um, with my with two of my kids, in fact, and uh, visited some of the cheesemakers that we we uh, filmed with, mm-hmm. and uh, selected. What I would regard as benchmark cheeses hmm. of, of, of their type. Now, those benchmark cheeses are just like compromise in one way, in the sense that obviously in the States and in Australia, something like uh, a, a raw milk uh, camembert is not allowed. Mm-hmm. So, what right. do you do? But on the other hand, uh, some of them uh, are, uh, are, are are the best, the best, the best, best in kind. So. Uh, on, on the on the on the list, for example, is a um, Le Concron Bur de Barat. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you've seen the episode about uh, uh, butter that's been made in a Barat, but mm-hmm. uh, when you go to this small um, forty square kilometer area of um, of Normandy and just by just by the coast, and you see how the cows graze on green pastures, buttercups, and daisies. Mm. Um, Mostly, yeah. and Amazing. and uh, you, you, you see how how the cream's collected and matured, and then then handmade in, into delicious butter. You go, wow, that's that's, that's extraordinary. <laughs> right. that's, 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 and, it, and you taste it, it; it's just something else. So that would that that would be part of the range, or mm-hmm. probably our, our, our most popular cheese would be the halloumi, ah. uh, which comes from Cyprus. Yeah, um, I was curious about that. Okay, well, so so halloumi is a first of all, um, halloumi is the cheese of Cyprus, mm-hmm. um, and and it's a very clever cheese in the sense that it, all it takes is the milk of sheep and goats, um, and and, uh, and essentially it cooks in its in its own it's cooked in its own way. Hmm. 
So uh, in a country that's essentially dry and doesn't have a lot of water for much of the year, it makes a lot of sense in right. the way it's made. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, after the curds are formed, they're cooked in the whey uh, for up to an hour, and then the, the whey is also salted and the cheese is matured um, in, in, in a salted way. So mm. if you imagine feta, mm-hmm. a bumi traditionally is held the same way. Mm. Um, but where it gets to be misunderstood is that somewhere in the last 100 years, the British, God bless them, decided <laughs> to introduce cows to the island of Cyprus. Uh-huh. Uh, now, cows, <laughs> cows it's, um, Cyprus is pretty dry. It's not a place where cows get to roam around in lovely right. green fields. Right. It's the polar uh, opposite, generally. maybe, of that Normandy pasture for the bird of Barat, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so they're completely, completely the opposite to seeing you know, cows hanging around from very dry, dusky paddocks, hmm. um, looking not, not so happy. Uh, intensive farming, essentially. It's, it's, hmm. Intensive farming um, is, is interesting how it's changed um, lots of cheeses, and, 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 and a good example would be burrata, but let's not go down that course right now. Um, <laughs> what and, do you and, mean by intensive type. farming, just so our listeners well, uh, know? What I mean is is that uh, when cows started to be kept uh, in large holding mm. sheds and fed, um, right. basically fed all the time by the farmer hmm. rather than being allowed to go out in, into the fields and graze naturally, right. uh, okay. not, not, not freely graze. Obviously, in, 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 in winter and stuff, that was that's important. Right. But uh, during the summer, uh, cows can, would go out and graze. And, well, um, they, can't, they don't really get to do that in Cyprus because there's nowhere to graze. Hmm. Um, and and, and uh, so the first thing to understand is, is that halloumi, uh, traditional halloumi doesn't contain cow's milk. Hmm. Um, and 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 but a lot of halloumi out there, when you see in the market, does con- does contain cow's milk because uh, after it was introduced, it reduced the price. It meant that Cyprus could produce more cheese, and and the large producers, of course, would wouldn't agree with the idea that the cow's milk um, shouldn't be included. And and worse than that, you know, it's awfully tempting to to take cow's milk from the rest of the European Union and add it back into your cheese. Hmm. So. Um, so the idea that halloumi should contain cow's milk, in my opinion, and I've got to stress it's in my opinion, mm-hmm. is uh, a travesty and, and that shouldn't mm-hmm. be allowed. And there are moves within Cyprus to reduce the amount of cow's milk that's allowed in halloumi. Um, I think in the next few years they're going to reduce it to mm. below 50%. Interesting. But in my opinion, there shouldn't be any. Yeah. Huh. And, and when then, you think uh, about the milk type and what it does to flavor and texture, I mean, it's sort of wild to think that you, you could just throw around this name of a cheese, halloumi, but a goat and sheep's milk version must be very different from the cow's milk version. I've never had one that wasn't cow's milk. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah. so the cow's milk has all the squeak and none yeah. of the flavor. Yeah. Uh, the, goat, the goat and sheep's milk, well... What again? When you start looking into it, the goat and sheep's milk Cyprus uh, is an island that was divided um, after an altercation between Turkey and Greece. Uh, and but prior to that, it was it was it was um, one island. Mm-hmm. And in the north uh, northeast of the island uh, was basically where the sheep would graze and flat and green. Mm-hmm. And down in the in the southwest of the island is where you would find the goats. 
mm-hmm. and uh, quite hilly and dry. Right. And the uh, the, com- the combination of milks that would be used would depend on the season and which part of the which region of the island you came from. Oh, interesting. And the size of the cheese, which size of the cheese also varied. Mm. So. Um, in, in, in areas where sheep's milk was produced, there tended to be much larger cheeses that only produced on a very limited seasonal basis mm-hmm. compared to those produced from, from goat's milk. Anyway, um, the, to, today, uh, the, 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 the Cypriot Halloumi, the Republic of Cyprus Halloumi, uh, tends to be mainly, um, the traditional cheese tends to be mainly goat's milk because it comes from that side of the island. Mm-hmm. And the cheese that... Um, that, that we've selected, the Aphrodite Halloumi, mm-hmm. is um, handmade. It's, it's the only handmade um, Cypriot Halloumi that, that, um, that, 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 that is exported. Hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a family of shepherds. Um, it really is all done by hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, it's quite, quite, quite an interesting logistics game, getting it from Cyprus to... <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. To the United States and to Australia. How can um, yeah. how can we... So now I'm, I'm going to run out and try to find this cheese. How can people find the cheeses that you've selected? What's the best way? Well, I get I guess go to the website, but I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I know that the the Aphrodite Halloumi is uh, available in 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 all the Whole Food stores. Mm-hmm. Oh, great! They've been, okay. super, they've been super supportive of that. Wow, and, uh, that's great, and, and and it's great to see. Um, and and uh, you, you talked about the difference between the goat and sheep's milk making a difference to flavour. Right. In, in this case, you, you, what what happens is that the sheep's milk gives the cheese its Body, mm-hmm. it's it's fat, it's mm-hmm. um that richness, it, 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 and, um the richness mm-hmm. that when you when you when you when you cook it, the the, the fat, the, the the rich fat of the sheep's milk comes out and gives a lovely browning effect to the mm. cheese, and then the goat's milk is gives that lovely lemony tangy finish to it. So mm. the combination of the two, perfect, just, it's just yeah. Fantastic! I mean, wow. yeah, it's, it's something else, but it's it's pretty rare to find halloumi like that. You know, so much of, of halloumi is is sold on on price, 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 mm-hmm. rather yeah. than on quality. And yeah, I and with fresh cheeses, I think people also do a uh, you know sort of discount. Uh, you know, the the cost assumption on a fresh cheese. You know, like people, there's certain fresher cheeses that I feel like are people think of it separately from artisanal or specialty, you know, and um, it's just really not true in this whole, the way that you're describing it is really evidence and the way that it is in the episode. Yeah, I get yeah, that. That's, that's right. And I, I guess that comes back to that story about the cheddar and, and realizing that quality was the most important thing about about what I wanted to do with cheese. Right. So if I was going to sum, give you a summary of what what the uh, selections about, it's about quality. Hmm. Um, you That's know, great. It, it's definitely about quality, and I'm totally uh, open about some of the compromises, like the, the Camembert. The Camembert is a, it's a fantastic Camembert. I think it, you know, it's called the Concron Camembert. I think mm-hmm. it's fantastic, but the compromise is it's got a culture in it called. Um, a special culture in it called called Hafnia Alvi, which mm-hmm. you find more and more being used in pasteurized cheese, mm. gives it that really funky cow flavor, right. which is similar to um, 
raw milk can there, but it's not the same. I mean, if right. I could only do the real thing, I would. Right, um, right. And I don't, but I don't want to try and pretend that it's it's, it's something that's not. It's, it's a really stinky, funky cheese, and, and for a lot of people, they go, whoa, is that camembert? And I go, yeah, <laughs> camembert is meant to smell like the feet of God, and this is as close as I can get <laughs> without using raw milk. But it's, it's, it's also not, a good not, way you know, to... It's almost a good way to start the conversation, too, of, um, you know, why it can't be raw milk in certain countries. So I think yeah, it helps yeah, in that sense, yeah, too. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Very interesting. Yeah, so do you plan on adding any other cheeses to the selection, or are you, uh, are you happy with the size as of now? Uh, we're always looking. We're always looking. You know, the selection's growing. In fact, mm-hmm. we're... Um, Funny enough, we were off to um, Comte to have a look at some Comte. Oh, great. Um, yeah. So Comte is one of my uh, favorite cheeses. It, it, Me too. It, uh, it, it, it sort of opened my eyes to cheese all those years ago. I was, mm-hmm. I was um, enjoying, enjoying Comte and, and suddenly realized that Comte that was uh, cut straight from the wheel was something very different mm-hmm. to what was being sold at that oh, time yes. in the little packs. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, so so we're having a look at, at that, and um, Ellie and my my daughter Ellie and, and my son Sam are coming over. They're they're really responsible for the business now. They've they've got themselves a little cheese column over here in Australia now. Oh, great! And, uh, they're they're really ha- helping out with the with uh, the, ch- the the cheese selection. So that's wonderful. Uh, later this year, we'll, we'll have a content, and uh, we've also got a beautiful um, raw milk. Um, and Chago called El Espato, which mm. we had to launch as well. And that'll be your first cheese from Spain, is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's that's related to that. Um, that cheese is actually features in in season eight of these slices. Funnily enough, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, one of the great things about I don't know if it's the same for you. I'm sure it is, but one of the great things about working with cheese is you're always finding out something new. Right, totally. Um, you, 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 yeah, and and uh, I know I should have known this, hey, but uh, I, I thought I knew all about Manchego, but <laughs> it was only when we filmed, <laughs> I have to admit, it was only when we filmed season eight and we, we, we went to a farm and we were talking about the, the, the baskets, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, how Manchego has this, um, all Manchego has to have the mark of the basket on the outside right. under, under the... The woven uh, pattern. Under, under the Appalachian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you read all the books, it'll tell you, that it's uh, formed by the basket that the cheese is drained in. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, well, guess what? <laughs> however, <laughs> the real cheese, uh, the original cheese, was, was wasn't drained in a basket. Uh, in fact, what what happened was the cheese was put into a belt. Huh. So just imagine a belt of woven grass, uh-huh. and basically the belt was wound wound around a wooden uh, base. Okay. And then the curd was poured into that, and then the belt was slowly um, tightened huh. to to, um, to 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 get the moisture out to of the cheese. More. Mm-hmm. And it also had a rock on the top. Hmm. But you can imagine this belt is pulled tighter and tighter, like a girdle, to mm-hmm. just to, to to get the moisture out of the cheese. So that's where those marks originally hmm. came from. Wow. And so not, they would maybe be only on, originally they were only on one side of the cheese. Am I picturing that right? No, no, no. If you mm-hmm. imagine a, 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 a belt, like a, oh, a, a oh, belt okay. of, 
grass. Got it, got it. Yeah, rather yeah. like rather like in the mountains, uh, you would see, I wonder if Comte was made this way actually once, was um, if you imagine like um, a, a, a belt of bark. Yes, yes, um, yes. I can remember going up and seeing, yeah, go, yeah. You can, I've, I've, certainly we've filmed stories with cheese like Beaufort, which are mm-hmm. drained, traditionally drained in, in wooden, you know, wooden belts. Yeah. They were just tight. So interesting. I didn't, I did not know that about Manchego either. That's, you're, you're so well, right that it's one of those things about working in this industry is that you're just, just when you feel like, oh yeah, I've, I've got the hang of it. Something surprises you or some story, you know, reveals a detail that makes total sense that you didn't know before. So that's really, thank you for sharing that. That's great. Um, well, that's right. No, no, yeah, that's right. It's me going there, all that stuff. I love it. I love it. So. Yeah, you know, one of the, the we, we're sort of getting the end of the show here, but I had two final questions for you. And one of them, uh, in a way, you, I think you touched upon maybe what I assume might be your answer, but I always like to ask people who've created, you know, a lot of longevity in the cheese industry, you know, what advice you would give to people who are, you know, making their way through or or trying to figure out how they can work in cheese, um, you know, for, for the duration or at least for a long amount of time. Do you have any advice for, uh, you know, now that you've, You've had so many. You've worn different hats, and you've advice is follow your passion. Yeah, you can't fake it. You either if you, you're either in it or you're not in it. Mm. And if you're in it and you're passionate about it, then 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 follow your passion and, and try and remember it's the cheese that's the star. Mm. I think that's something else too. I mean, it's yeah. uh, the, the, the cheese is and the people who make them are, are what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's funny that, how that we follow can... your passion. That can sometimes get uh, not lost in translation, but it's especially on the retailer or distributor side. It's like you get caught so caught up in the day-to-day operations of what you're doing, and it's easy to not forget, but maybe lose sight of those where the cheese is coming from and who's making it and why. So it's always good to have that as a reminder. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely. So then my, my final question um, kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show and relates to this change in tone in, in your eighth season on cheese slices. And, you know, I'm wondering what you would say to our listeners who you know, are spread throughout the industry, but also just enthusiastic cheese consumers um, you know, what can people do to show their support for traditionally made cheeses? Um, in a way, I think we we may, you know, there is sort of a groundswell of support. I don't think it's quite as loud as it was in the 60s and 70s during that revolutionary time. But um, I'm wondering from your perspective what you think that, that folks can or should do to support the cheeses that are you know, kind of falling out of production at this point? Well, uh, yeah, so first of all, it's to recognize that, um, that, that there is a real threat to the future of, of traditional cheese making, particularly mm. cheese made from raw milk. Um, and the best way to support that is to get out there and, and uh, I guess, buy the cheese and, and look right. for it and, and, and support it that way. And that's how the revolution started. It didn't start with the cheesemaker. It started with consumers. Hmm. And if it's going, it, and, uh, if it's going to continue, 
it has to be the consumers that will, that will back it. Hmm. It's not going to happen because the authorities say, oh, it's okay, you can make whatever you want. Right. It's not going to happen because cheesemakers just do it. it. It has to come down to consumers. Hmm. You're so right. Um, getting out there. Yeah. Um, and, and Go ahead. Really, uh, my is just is to try and provide the information so people can make that sort of choice. Mm-hmm. We do have a choice, um, and uh, it's important if we want these cheeses to survive for another generation mm. and future generations to come that um, that we support them now. Such a good, such so a good message, mind. such a good charge. <laughs> Well, get out there, consumers, and uh, check them out and, 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 and have a look at the difference and try and understand them. It's not just all about the price. Right, it's, right. It's about the flavor. It's about the taste of place. Mm-hmm. It's, about supporting, uh, it's about supporting so much more than, 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 uh, than, just, than, than, than just even flavor. You know, when you, look at, when you talk about animal welfare, you look right. about artists and uh, cheese making, the right. implications of supporting those cheeses and, and, uh, yeah. And we could even uh, get into, you know, sustainable land management and, you know, it keeps going and going. It's, it's really, it's buying one, you know, piece of Aphrodite halloumi from Cypress has this enormous sort of cultural, but also uh, agricultural and economic impact. It is pretty wild. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The implications of supporting artisan cheese are very, very significant. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go out and buy some cheese now. <laughs> Though that's not that's right. not an unusual activity for me, for sure. Um, well, so, thank you. Yes, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on air today, Will. This was really fun. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram at Cutting the Curd or shoot us an email at cuttingthecurd at heritageradionetwork.org. We'd love to hear about your favorite raw milk, traditionally made cheeses. And if you need some inspiration, check out our show notes where I'll link to Will Studd's website. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for more Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening. <laughs>